welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 23, The No-Nos of Game Design. Presented by Stan, Jeff Bellinger, Daniel Solis, and Matt Forbeck. Recorded at Gen Con 2011 by Jason Pitt. What's hard is, you know, people not getting it. What's hard is people cutting the check to your pseudonym. Yeah, I don't care. Yeah, I know the bank does not care, but what it says on my role-playing game. So you need to set up a business account under your. I do, and I should have that. But I should have that. Did you try to cash a check with Xander the Great? Two hundred fifty dollars. No other. You try to cash in gold coins. I would like that in Quatlos, please. Five Quatlos for the newcomers. Xander shall vanquish all. Excellent. Well, shall we get started? Uh, we, uh, yeah, why not? We're all here, right? Okay. So apparently, Tweet is supposed to moderate. Who? Jonathan. Jonathan. Oh, cool. Yeah. But I haven't seen him at all, and I don't know that he knows he's supposed to moderate. <laughs> <laughs> and you're out of chairs. Well, we and, know, yeah, but you know, we, we maybe, I bet he'd run around the audience like uh, uh, Ricky Lake. <laughs> wow. I'm having a flashback. Ricky Lake. Yes. I'm old. I'm old. You're lucky I didn't say Phil Donnie. That's right. Mike Douglas. Like Mike Douglas used to, right? Take me and die. Well, I think we can go ahead and introduce, introduce ourselves. Yes, I think that's a fine idea. Let's start with the guy on the left. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Your left? <laughs> my other one, yes. Your uh, military oh. left. Yeah. Um, my name is Matt Forbeck. I'm a freelance game designer and writer. I've been doing this for 20-some years. Uh, this is actually my 30th Gen Con in a row. I started coming when I was a kid, and I just love being here. It's always a great time. Today's my birthday. So. Spend your birthday, right? I got my eldest son's back here in the back row watching me and sharing my birthday with me here at Jenkins. Uh, I used to run a company called Pinnacle Entertainment Group, which did Deadlands, Brave New World, a whole bunch of other games. Um, I've written products for just about every company in the industry. Well, every bigger company in the industry. There's a lot of companies in the industry. And nowadays, I mostly do novels. I had a couple of original novels called Immortals and Vegas Nights come out from Angry Robot this year. Uh, I just wrote a book called Star Wars vs. Star Trek that came out from Adams Media. I'm doing mm-hmm. comic books, video games, toys, all sorts of stuff. I just saw your novels last weekend when I was down at Powell's. And, uh, <laughs> I was walking down the aisle and it's like a four-bag section. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Stan, the guy with the exclamation point. Uh, I also have been in the industry uh, quite a while. Uh, I've worked for West End Games and TSR and Wizards of the Coast and Upper Deck uh, as varying things from editor to creative director to senior designer. Uh, also started, uh, one of the people behind starting two smaller companies, the Game Mechanics and Super Genius Games. Uh, most of my effort these days is going into being creative director uh, for Super Genius Games and doing freelance work similarly to the lines of what Matt was just described. Uh, I'm Daniel Solis. Uh, by day, I'm creative director at an advertising agency uh, with a lot of national clients. By night, I'm a independent game designer, um, and I kind of got my start doing layout for a bunch of other independent game designers, and then I started uh, stepping into the actual game myself, and I've uh, been posting a lot of stuff on danielsolis.com, and this is my second game out on Indie Press Revolution, Dope Pilgrims of the Flying Temple. It's a storytelling game directed at tweens in age 12 and up. Um, it's a lot of fun, and it's like a lot of inspiration from Avatar The Last Airbender, if you're a fan. Um, 
when your first game was? Uh, Happy Birthday Robot, which is directed at a... It's a storytelling game directed at slightly younger kids uh, for families and cra- uh, classrooms. Uh, but it's also a storytelling game. Um, and uh, it's got a lot of support with teachers and librarians. Um, so that's it's awesome. That's, it, is, it is absolutely awesome. You're moving up the age of those Yes, gradually. Yes. Okay. So it's not like the role-play game. Sir? Twilight, the role-playing game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's what the money is. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sparkly money. Yeah. I'm Jeff Bellinger, and I've been working on Killer Bunnies for 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> He's almost got it done. And I've invented a few other little games, but uh, little blips on the radar. Next year, we're coming out with uh, Psychic Penguins. So protect your brains. Um, I do a lot of consulting for uh, different folks who invent games for their mathematical basis. My master's is in math. I love math. I'm the one. <laughs> love math? Anyone? Math people? Yes. Number theory. Um, this is, well, let's see, what are some of the other things people mentioned? This is my ninth Gen Con. When was it in Wisconsin? It was started out in Wisconsin, Gary Gagex's basement. What was the last? Right, you, you seem like you were there. It's been here for nine years. I think. Okay, yeah. then, then this ten, would be ten years ago. Is the last time that it was. That was so ten, ten years. years. It was, it was yeah. I went to one in Wisconsin, and I loved Wisconsin. And then we moved here, and I yes. like Indy too. Yeah, Indy. So, you know, yeah. I, I was born and raised in Wisconsin. I love Milwaukee shows and all that. Mm-hmm. This is Indy welcomed us with open arms. It's been fantastic. Yeah. It was great. I, I will not say a bad word against Milwaukee, but Indy. It's just been awesome. I like them both equally. Thank you very PC. <laughs> There's not this one of the no-nos is don't insult people. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things, actually, I mean, just kind of do a stupid segue on that, is you see from listening to, to uh, the longer you're in the industry, the more you're working with people in different companies and people switch around. So one of the big no-nos is to don't inadvertently insult people. Don't don't be mean when you don't need to be because it's only going to come back and affect something later on. The person you're, who's your editor at Game Company A is going to be your, you know, the hiring manager at Game Company F. However, when you do need to, when you need to be mean, go all out. <laughs> <laughs> you got to burn that bridge. Burn it to them. Don't make it go home. <laughs> make sure they never knew there was a bridge there. <laughs> Well, what should we talk we're about? We're a little befuddled by this very yeah. negative subject. What, what yeah. are you guys hoping that we're going to talk about? I mean, that's kind of a pop-out. I've done this one a few different years. Oh, it's it's usually it's me and Mike Brain and a couple other guys, but we usually sit up here and say, this is how you shouldn't do this, and then we explain how you should do it as well. So, Sounds good. Um, and it's mostly about game design stuff. Like, you know, um, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll ask you guys, like, what kind of games are you interested in? Like, there's a whole different, bunch of different types, like role-playing games, miniatures games, card games, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you're familiar with these? Yes. <laughs> yeah. that's it. It's probably also useful if you can illustrate things that you have done wrong in the past. Oh, that's oh. <laughs> that's so yeah. We only have an hour. <laughs> so right, that could, that's, that's a good one. Let's each do one of those. That's, yeah, that's good. Um, all right, one of the big... I, I did a game called Brave New World many years ago, which is a superhero role-playing game. And my big mistake in that was not listening to the hardcore audience, our core audience. Because we thought we were going to sell this game to all sorts of uh, comic book 
player, or Rouge, right? The problem was that uh, the company kind of fell apart at that point. We ended up not having the marketing dollars to go out and do it, to push in the comic book industry. So we ended up relying on our core market. Now, the core market wants to be able to build their own powers and, you know, really down to the nitty-gritty of game design. I had built this template thing where you just, any idiot could pick it up and play and go, right? But the, the hardcore market, they don't care about that. They want to be able to play champions. They want to tinker with the, the engineering craft of that stuff for superhero role-playing games. So I totally misread what they wanted for that stuff. People love the game, they love the setting, they love the, the combat system, they love everything else about it, except for the power design system, because I didn't open it up to people. So part of that, I think, is just try to, try to figure out what's out there, why people like it, and um, make sure that you're giving them what they want. You can go beyond that, you can do different things with it, but don't limit yourself in ways that will limit your audience. Particularly, a lot of games actually start out in this market, as we call them, the core hobby market, and then can move out into other things. But if you don't get the core hobby market behind you, you don't get anybody behind you. So was that was that a decision that you made, or was that a decision for, for targeting it? Totally my fault. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying it's one of the things that happens a lot when you're when you're not independent, when you're working even with a small group, you're going to make group decisions, and, and sometimes you're going to pick a target that when you go for it, you've overlooked steps right. one through three, and you sh- shoot for step four. Exactly. I mean, you know, the whole marketing thing falling apart, the company splitting up at that point, wasn't my fault, technically. technically. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think I did ignore the idea that I should have been focusing more on the core audience, the guys who are the hardcore role players. That was actually that audience I came from and designed from for many years. I thought, let's try to do something a little bit simple that can go out to a more of a mass market, right? But it wasn't like really simple and innovative, like the stuff that Daniel's doing. It was kind of a hybrid, and because of that, it was either a fish or a fowl, and it didn't really sell to either one of them. So, right. just kind of a spin-off. Did, did you do a lot of playtesting with it? I did, yeah. And, and people like the game, they like to play it, uh, but the problem was it's not... The problem with that was the character creation system worked just fine. It was the powers creation system, which was non-existent, basically. I said, here's some templates for powers. I'll come out with more of them as we go along. And here's the basic 20 that you're going to need. And people are like, no, I don't like that. I want to be able to build my own stuff. I want to be able to break it down to like little tiny points and then build it back up again, like a Lego set, right? Like champions, essentially, or hero, or uh, groups. Um, or like masters, masters, or mutants and masterminds did later. I mean, these kind of things. But I had, I had thought maybe I could do something different. That was not where I should have chosen to innovate. Uh, the background and the, and the setting and everything else, the combat system and the game system were good innovations. But that's another rule you should do is don't try to innovate everything at once, right? Because uh, you're, you're, as a game designer, especially if you're a professional or if you're a hardcore gamer, you've been doing this a long time, you get bored with what's out there and you start thinking, I just want to have something new, fresh, cool, exciting, right? But if you make everything about it new, cool, fresh, exciting, you're going to lose a lot of your audience. Because every time you go a little bit away from what people expect, you lose some people and gain some others, right? But if you do six different things as opposed to two different things, you lose six times as many people. Right? Or three times. I guess my mask got it. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was wondering about that. Um, so I'm going to go with a similar similar vein. Um, and I, I, mean, I guess I, I will take responsibility for it, though it's only partially mine. Uh, <laughs> and that's when we were working on the uh, Dragonlance Fifth Age game uh, for... Uh, TSR and Wizards of the Coast, which again was designed to go to a new audience. They were trying to, there were, there were the sales of Dragonlance in the game line and sales of Dragonlance in novels. And those of you who are listening on recording devices can't see that one head is much higher than the others, and that's the novels. And so our goal was to try and find ways to bring the, the people that really love the setting to try 
the, this game and to get them into role playing and maybe eventually get them into D and D too. So we uh, produced a card based game, um, which was not the, the problem. The problem was how we chose to sell it, and that it was it was a packaging problem because what we wanted to do was get the novel players together. So we kept, we created the intro box game was the size of a hardcover novel, and we sent it out there and bookstores shelved it with the games. And if you know going to mass market bookstores, the games are generally in large, or at that point, pretty were large slots that they got slotted into that are meant for eight and a half by eleven books. And when you drop something the size of a hardcover in it, it disappears into the bottom. And so uh, after after that went, and we couldn't, we found it wouldn't showing up anywhere we wanted to. We went to our salespeople, and they said, "Oh no, they won't possibly put that on the cover on the shelves of the hardcovers. That guy, that real estate's really valuable in the game store." And so he said, well, I, why didn't we know that? <laughs> okay, what if, we, what if we do it as a, a, a soft cover? There's lots of room for a soft cover. So we put out what is called the Saga Fate deck, which was a set of, of spare cards and a, and a bare-bones version of the rules, but it was the size of, of a small uh, novel or a novella, a paperback size, and meant to go on the paperback shelves where all the other Dragonlance books were. But... Um, because it was released by uh, Wizards of the Coast and not Wizards of the Coast novels, <laughs> it went into the game section oh. and fell even further into the slot. <laughs> so, uh, well, what we didn't do, and part of what we did and got bad information on, was go and push hard enough on the people who were going to be selling it and finding out how the end user, or particularly how the sales people are going to be using what you sent them. If, if it's going to retail to large book chains, which there are fewer of than ever before, uh, you need to know when it goes out there, where are they going to put it? You need to design it physically so it will fit in that space. If it's going to, uh, to hobby stores, you know you're probably not going to get a lot of face out, so you've got to have something that looks good on the spot. Now, kind of understanding how your product is going to live in the real world so that the people you want to find it and ooh and ah and gush it and, and take it off the shelves and take it home and love it, they will be able to do all that. Because if it's sitting in the bottom of the shelf, even the people who would love it are never going to find it. Yeah. Yeah, when we did uh, Deadlands, for instance, we came up with the ugliest colors we possibly could for the company. <laughs> the trade dress. The trade dress is how you make sure it all looks, all the books align with the similar. So we did this... Uh, bright orange and red Photoshop cloud thing, right? That basically looked like fire. And uh, the reason was we knew that there were a lot of books on game shelves and game stores that are black or white or whatever, and we knew nobody would miss that. So if they're looking for our stuff, they're going to be able to find it. Also, sometimes they would just say, what the hell is that? <laughs> and pick it up. And as soon as you get somebody to pick up your box or your book or whatever, that's a, win. That's a big win. And then they start looking at it. If, until they pick it up, you're just kind of part of the wall, right? Once they pick it up, you actually have their attention, then hopefully you can sell more of your doing. Um, let's see. Uh, have, have, uh, can I do two? Yeah. <laughs> okay, two big mistakes. And this is, this is, some, uh, this is speaking we as someone... Whole hour, so yeah, this is speaking <laughs> as someone who is more new to the hobby and industry than, than, than everyone else here. So just rookie mistakes. Um, don't overpromise. Uh, and that was, that was my first mistake. Um, I, uh, I, I work, part, of, part of the way I work is I work in public. So whenever I'm designing a game, I'll do it on my blog and I'll post about it at each stage of the process, whenever I'm doing playtesting, whenever I have new editions of graphics, whenever I have uh, new character sheets or what have you. 
I'll post all those updates on the blog so and to get feedback from everyone um, and just you know, just generally to show people where I'm at. It keeps me accountable. The problem is um, if I set a date, I have to stick to that date. And, uh, and there were a couple of times when I thought I would be ready for playtest and on one date, and I was definitely not. Uh, and I, I didn't find that out until it's much too late. Thankfully, people were uh, were very uh, reliable and loyal, and just and just stuck with it. And uh, they believed in the project enough to uh, just kind of wait until it was actually ready. And then and then when they played it, they liked it. Um, and so I was very fortunate in that. But still, if you're going to be accountable to uh, to people in public, if you design that way. Uh, just make sure that you don't overpromise on those dates. The, um, the uh, second thing that I did wrong was probably, I don't I don't know uh, how you want to put it, but um, I make the way I kind of um, have laid out had worked at Robot and uh, Dopamine's Flying Temple is in this eight and a half by eight and a half square, which as uh, as you guys have noted, if you just drop it into like this kind of wooden retail slots, it just kind of falls in. Um, but uh, so that's that's a no-no for if you're if you're marketing specifically in the core hobby uh, retail space. Uh, the way I, I've kind of justified it and, and a little bit is that I'm not really focused on that market exclusively. Hyperworth uh, Robot was very much directed towards uh, classrooms, uh, families, teachers. I also uh, pushed heavily online sales so that the cover uh, the cover worked well as a thumbnail. Um, even if it would just get lost in, uh, in a retail space. And I've sort of followed the same track with Doe, and I'm, whatever the third game is going to be, I'll follow that same track. So in the end, I kind of saved that mistake a little bit by, by just kind of saying, oh, yeah, it was a branding decision. Yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> the question is, when we come back to this seminar in five years, well, how will, he, how will you yeah. do that in history? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So come back five years, and I'll probably say, oh, God, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I've got a good story for you. I get approached about 100 times a year with someone who's invented something or a game or some other product, and they ask me to take a look at it, or do you think this is something you'd be interested in producing on the side, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a friend in college. This is not a story about me. <laughs> this is a friend. Because you got nothing wrong. This is a true story. Uh, he invented a gauge. And uh, it, it was a piece of metal. It looked sort of like a, a V cut out of it. And you would hold it up to a, uh, a hex nut, and it would tell you what size the hex nut was. And he showed me he was well into production for this thing when, when I re-got introduced to him. I had gone to college with him, and I saw him a few years later. And um, he was just happier than anything, he thought this was brilliant. He said, rather than going like this, and you try this one, and you try that one, and the, the byline was uh, grab the right wrench the first time each time. Little wordy, but the, the point was that you hold the gauge up to the hex nut, you find out what size it is, and then you grab the right wrench. He, he had these uh, uh, gauges uh, punched, he had them laser engraved, and back in 2000, 2001, that was, that was just in its infancy. That was pretty good. And the whole point was to get a company to buy into it and have their logo on the back, and it would be a hanger. It would be a, an impulse buy at, at Home Depot or something like that. And he was hoping to get one of the big companies, you know, get an order for Home Depot. It's, it's in the hundreds of thousands, and he thought that that would be the, the best thing ever. And he asked me to take a look at it, but he was already producing them. He got orders of 30 or 40 here, certainly hadn't made back his initial investment. 
And I, I looked at it, and I, I said, all right, well, let me give this some thought. And I read the byline. I read the name. It was an alliteration, which was nice. Um, but I said to him after a day of thinking about it, I said, what about adjustable wrenches? <laughs> and you could just see his whole face drop. And it's funny to you, but he took out, well, his parents took out a second mortgage of about 125000 to pay for the startup costs because he wanted to do it right. Mm. What I always suggest in something of this nature is come up with the idea, copyright, patent protect, do whatever you got to do, and then pitch it to larger companies and don't spend your own money. Yeah. Um, he spent his parents' money, which, you know, as soon as they're gone would have been his money anyway, so technically that he's spending somebody's money. You really don't want to do that. That's a no-no. It makes Thanksgiving awful hard. It sure does. So I think the no-no in this is I asked him about adjustable wrenches. And then I said to him, well, who really uses wrenches? Mostly mechanics. And I don't know a mechanic that can't eye a hex nut and get it on maybe the second try. So you got one try, got it on the second try. Well, gauge one, wrench two, where's the advantage? And I hated to put a pin in the balloon, but I wanted to be the realist. And when you invent something, if it's a game or an invention or something like that, you're very close to it. And you may think it's uh, the, the cat's meow. But you have to get somebody else to take a look at it that you don't know, have no investment in, no friendship in, and something like that to say, yeah, but what about adjustable wrenches? Plus the fact that what if you can't see the gauge? You know, if you're working on a car or something, then you can, you have to feel that. That's half the time, too. And so I punched a few holes in it, and he got very angry at me. hasn't spoken to me since. <laughs> no, it's true. Oh. It's true. He got very, very upset. And um, we had, I had just started, just started to put out my first game as an independent. And, um, you know, I'd sold 200 copies in a year, and I was, I was flying high. Um, but I didn't invest $125,000. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my investment was a few thousand dollars. So, you know, what did I give up, really? A few vacations and imported wine. So, uh, you know, him and his folks were kind of in the hole for, uh, you know, a large chunk of change. Uh, I guess the point of it being that you can have a great idea. Step one is, is sound. Step two is sound. Step three is sound. And then if step four can just happen, I've got five, six, and seven, and then we're, we're on our way to the, the, you know, the, the big house. But there's that one step that doesn't make sense, and I find that people have a great way of overlooking that because they believe so strongly in the first three steps and the last three steps. So, again, I, I was being serious. This is not a story about me. I, I actually keep one of those. Um, gauges, because I got a prototype. Um, and I keep one if I had known we were going <laughs> seven of them lodged in my car. Um, if I'd known I was coming, I'd have brought it. Um, and, but it's a good story. It's a story to say, hey, you can have your dreams. You can go for it. You can invent. You can create. But if you're going to do that to market, you have to keep one foot in reality. If you're going to write for yourself, and your friends, sky's the limit, do whatever you want. But if you're here to market and you want to make some money doing it, you need to keep one foot in reality, and for that you need other people to help you with perspective. So that is the story of the gauge. I know a lot of, I know a lot of designers, I know a lot of writers, too, who take great offense when they hand out something to their first readers. 
or their editors, sometimes even their editors, and when they get comments back saying, I don't get this, or this isn't working for me, that they get, they take personal offense. Uh, and if you are going to work professionally, it's really, uh, it's in your best interest to listen to those people. They're your audience, and what they're trying to help you make your thing better. You may not always do what they say, but you need to give real consideration to. They're not saying it because they, they want to hurt you. They're saying it because something about what you produce has not spoken to them the way you wanted it. Right. I like to do cold play testing when I do games. I'll actually find some people I don't know, send them a copy of the game. I don't be online or whatever. Send them a copy of the game and then have them get back to me with the play test report coming in. I think it's sending it blind. Publisher's Clearinghouse. I'll check this So I send out to these people. Often what I'll do is I'll find people who hated my last game and I'll co opt them as play testers. <laughs> Seriously. Because yeah. it does two things. One is that um, it means these are people who are good at picking my shit apart. So I'm, I'm happy to let them do it before it goes to press. And also because they're usually people who, who have a strong opinion and want to be listened to, they now, I co-opt them, they are now on my side as opposed to being somebody who's yelling at me from the sidelines, right? So I'll find people who hate my other stuff, hopefully not too many of them, and uh, get them to play test the game. And they'll usually write back to me and tell me how I totally screwed it up. And if you look closely at the report, you'll figure out that they misread this one rule and destroyed everything, right? What that tells me is I screwed up writing that rule. Right? So what you need to do, your rules are your game in so many ways. If your rules suck, if your rules are unclear, if they uh, can be misconstrued in any way, you have destroyed your game. Because they cannot package you in every box. If you are in every box, you could make, yeah, we're all entertainment people, we're game designers. We can sit down, I can, we can have fun playing anything, because I'll show you how to play it, I'll make adjustments on the fly, you get confused, or I see you're not quite getting it, I'll explain it again. You can't do that when it's on a, book, a bookshelf or in a store. So it just... Uh, so make sure the rules are good. Polish them to a fine sheen. Uh, Mike Gray, who I often do the seminars with, will sit there and tell you that um, if he likes a game that you've shown him, he then has to show it to designers and marketing people and publishers and et cetera, all the way down the line. And they all have to understand it, and he has to try to remember what the hell you told him. And a lot of times he's not even in the room either. So even when you're doing prototypes, when you're sending out stuff for people to see, the rules have to be fantastic. You know, take a good chance and make sure you get it right. When you say co-op... I'm really a beginner. Yeah. So when you say co-op, you actually pay them? No, no. When I say co-op, I mean I'm I'm uh, co-op. getting them to cooperate co-op. with it. Okay, uh, just checking because yeah. I thought no, no, that would. No, no. I most pay, people are I happy to do my, stuff for fun. Yeah. I pay my play testers in food. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and yeah, beer. Usually beer and pizza, what? right? Um, when they're beer. just doing it for oh. fun, you can just send them the stuff, and they'll usually turn it out and just send you stuff back. But okay. no, you don't usually have to pay for that. Always give people credit, yeah. right? Credit is the cheapest and easiest and best thing to give people, right? People like to be acknowledged for the work they've done, even if it's just that they said, hey, thanks, or you know, they brought you your, your, your they brought the pizza to you, right? Okay. Now, the, the lady who cooked for you that day, whatever. Say thank you to people. It always helps. It doesn't cost a dime. To actually add another name to your book. On that note, um, it's by the way, good advice for life too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on that note, um, kind of kind of tying all this together, honestly. Um, so they uh, t- and taking for example the guy who, uh, who made the little gauge. gauge mm-hmm. um, he invested a lot of his own money into that prototype before he knew there was actually a, a viable market for it, and before he knew that it was actually a buyer for it. Uh, there and a lot of game designers in the past. You may have heard horror stories where they've just lost their shirts trying to trying to put out their dream game because they they knew the way to fix D and D, and and so they want to just put their game out there. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, oh, yeah. 
and, 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 and a, lot of, a lot of dudes have lost a lot of money trying to do that. Now, we live in a different world now. Uh, we uh, have access to media that we, ne we never had 10 years ago. So in, in my case, the way, and the way I, I try to keep myself in check is by designing in public, and that's how I keep and that's how I make sure that what I'm doing here isn't an obvious error uh, that I've just totally uh, been blindsided by uh, later on. Um, Kickstarter is extraordinarily uh, helpful and valuable, and it's kind of brand new right now. I'm doing a Kickstarter panel tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow at Does anybody know what Kickstarter is? Yeah. 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 All right, so Kickstarter is basically a website that allows people to crowdsource funding of projects of various kinds. So there's art projects, film projects, novels, that sort of thing. Um, basically, uh, you have a desired goal that you state and a desired date that you want to achieve that financial goal by. And people can pledge however much they want towards that goal. And if you meet that goal by that date, then you'll get the money. No one's, uh, no one's credit cards are deducted until that point. So really, there's no risk to anyone who supports it, but it doesn't, go, but it doesn't uh, succeed. Uh, thankfully, uh, there's, there's been a lot of success for game designers on Kickstarter, uh, at least financially. Uh, where, where the challenges, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in the panel tomorrow at 9, this room, I think, actually. Um, is following through, so that's a whole other subject. Um, but thankfully, Kickstarter has been very successful for me, and, and it got Bill published. Um, but the uh, but what Kickstarter does, and it's valuable as far as keeping yourself in check, is that it gives you a sense of the actual market desire for whatever it is that you're pitching. Um, there's challenges to that inherent, uh, and so that make sure that if you have a good idea, that you position that good idea well, that you brand it well, that you present it well. Because uh, otherwise, a good idea will just flounder uh, if it's not marketed uh, well enough. Um, there's a whole other aspect of that, but I'll talk about. It. But basically, there are ways to get around the no-nos that have been established for the past 30 years, uh, and without without the high expense of, of, of what it cost people in the past. So, I know you got the Kickstarter panel, but just a quick question on that: Do you reward higher donations? Yes. Oh, and actually, that's that's one thing I want. Right. So you can set different tiers. So, so say you pledge thirty dollars, you'll get uh, you'll get a, a certain benefit. Um, in my case, uh, the pledge tier of forty dollars, uh, you got the book. Uh, higher than that, you got uh, extra things like the first supplement, um, so, and you got uh, got credit and stuff. But basically, on the note of giving people credit, the last uh, four or five page spreads. This game is made possible by this person, the, these people, these people, these people. Um, depending on the uh, the pledge donation that they gave, I described them. I had their name in here or whatever name they requested. Uh, and I gave them uh, credit as a creature of the world in the game, a citizen of the world in the game, or as a troublemaker in the world. <laughs> and I set that troublemaker to be the highest tier, and everyone took it. So, so a lot of a lot of the a lot of the mistakes that you, that you come across are making sure that you know who your audience is, uh, and when you're getting playtest feedback, make sure that the uh, the playtest feedback that you're getting. You're not just taking it at face value, that you're actually analyzing and finding out, is the complaint that they're making really about the thing they're talking about, or is it the way I presented it, the way I've written that rule, uh, is, it, is it something that I'm just missing at, uh, if I just look at face value? Don't get, don't get distraught by that. 
um, because it is tough. But um, one of the benefits I, I went through is uh, going through art school. And if you want people to critique your stuff and, and get a thick skin, go to art school. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, people will get offended. Uh, so, yeah, the, the best practice I ever got in that was uh, was professors. <laughs> yeah. Just your first thing you said was an educational game, and mine is too, and I know I'm at the wrong convention. No. But um, tell me how you got funding for that one. Kickstarter. Um, it's really for your robot. Yes, uh, happy birthday, robot. How did you get it in the schools? Uh, basically, what um, the, uh, designing in public was what uh, is what really is my thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll really I'll design and release board games, abstract games, little card games, that sort of thing, and just put them on my blog for free. Those are just really low investment things that I'll do. I won't produce them necessarily. Now I'm getting into more prototyping, but it took ten years of doing that in public to really get credibility. For one thing, um, and also uh, I have I have sort of a weird sideways way of getting into the industry because I, I met a lot of people through doing layout for them. So I, it's kind of a weird backwards way of doing it, but um, that was what got me credibility enough to get an audience, and that audience uh, saw how to the robot develop on forums, blog posts, all that. They saw it work, they saw it working out the kinks. Uh, they saw people playing it, and they saw the stories that were produced by that. So once the Kickstarter actually launched, there was an embedded audience ready and willing to donate right on the first weekend. And we met our uh, financial goal on the first weekend, and there was still 30 days left. So I had to figure out exactly how the hell am I going to get this anywhere, um, and because the the emotional drive to see things go over the top is gone once you hit 100%. So that's where you have to go into phase two of, your, of the whole process. And it was at that point that I decided any if you if you um, pledge extra, I'll send this game to schools of your choice. Oh, that's cool. So that's that's how I got into schools. And partly the uh, the reason I did that was because one of the first backers that uh, that I got was a teacher who had played Happy Birthday Robot in her classroom. And she, said, and she had pictures of her class. So I posted those on the Kickstarter, and that drew more traffic. So oh, yeah. it's just a sort of feedback loop. But and, she didn't go to education um, conventions or any of that? No. Yeah. Nobody sure could. I, 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 I probably should, but <laughs> like I said, this is, this is actually not my day job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, well, Daniel did something very smart here, too, that a lot of people don't do when they're starting out, is that you work in the industry with other people first, right? Um, it's If you have a choice between getting your game published by yourself or somebody else, for your first game especially, until you know what you're doing, I always recommend have somebody else publish your game. You don't know all the stuff you don't know. There's tons of stuff you'll have to learn about publishing a game. If you have somebody publish your first game, you can ask questions as they go along. You say, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it that way? Most of the time, people are happy to share that information, right? And they'll tell you why there's, you know, 110 cards in, in most card games, for instance, right? They'll tell you why the boxes are usually this size. They'll tell you why, you know, we need to have... Uh, our miniatures have to be this size and this shape, and they can't be undercuts and all this kind of stuff. There's all sorts of good reasons for these things that you just don't have any clue about when you're designing a game, right? And I've seen so many people. I, I do uh, consulting at Shite, uh, which is the Chicago Twenty Game Show in Chicago, and uh, people come in. They're like, "Here's my game. What's wrong with it?" Right? Which is a great thing to do. Unfortunately, some people times they come in and it's like, "Here's my game. I already printed it. What's wrong with it?" Oh, if you talk to me six months before, is he printed it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Literally, had this family come in there like, you know, we we mortgage everything. Uh, oh, really believe in this, and and and, and, and I, oh, what can we do with this? Story. I said, do you, do you know Toys for Tots? Right? Yeah. Do you know? Uh, can you get a donate? Can you donate this to something and take a tax right off? Because it's either that or you're going to be burning this for your um, to heat your house. So it was terrible. It just felt awful for them. Oh, um, that's sad. It is sad. I mean, because they really believed in it and loved it, but it was just so. Just, I mean, 
seems like they don't understand how selling a game works. So they had a $40 game that cost them $35 to make. <laughs> right? That gives them a $5 profit if they sell direct on every one of them. And they're probably tossing in shipping, so it zips everything out, right? But if you're really selling into the into the hobby market, for instance, usually you sell to distributors, and they, they want a 60% discount usually, right? And then they sell to stores that want a 50% discount. Oh my God. So you're only getting 40% of the retail price. That's actually pretty standard. Yeah, yeah. That's standard. And if you're if you're going to make your game, then if you want to make a profit, at the very least you need to make you need to uh, your cost your components and everything else. Your price line needs to be roughly half of what you're going to get from it, and probably even less than that. Your cost of goods, right? So at the at the most you want your uh, the cost of what you're making to be 20% of your retail price, right? There's a five-time multiplier. If you want to make a lot of money or if you can get the cost way down, you need a 10 or 20 multipliers even better, obviously. Those things are reserved for things usually that are high print run volumes like Pokemon, for instance, where they have yeah. like 100s or whatever. Yeah. It's nuts. The, the thing you got to think about, too, is just what your what is your measure of success? Yeah. Do you want to be in a game a game store? You don't have to be in a game store. I mean, uh, if, if your costs are manageable and you can actually sustain the level of growth that you have, that's a success to me. Oh yeah. I mean, you don't have. I don't necessarily. No, no. I mean, yeah. one of the things that Mike Gray will talk about when we do these too. He always says you have to decide first of all: are you doing commerce or art? Mm. Right? Is that's this a business a, for a you or question. is this a hobby? That's a right? good question. If it's yeah. a hobby, do whatever the hell you want. You know, but make sure it's a hobby and you're going to lose the money. Right? You're not really doing it for business. You're going to make games for your friends and family. You'll do them as art. You might bring them to Gen Con and, just, and show them to people and play them, whatever. You might even print a few copies. We have print on demand a PDF and everything else. It's very cheap to produce a lot of things these days. But don't confuse that with actually start, starting a business, which is an entirely different thing. Right? And when you're starting a business in the gaming industry, you need like salespeople and marketing people and distribution and print buyers and all this other kind of stuff. If you're selling one product, it doesn't make any sense to start a company to do all that. Right? Unless it's a huge thing and you think it's a breakout thing. But you probably don't know enough to know that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a question there. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to be rude. Sure. I'm totally off base. Uh, but I feel like all the discussion so far is focused yeah. mainly on marketing yeah. or publicity. Yeah. Ask us a design question. Yeah, please. Yeah. please. please. Um, well, I mean, I, here are the things I'm interested in. Um, there's some game companies that are all about making games with lots and lots of chips. Mm -hmm. And some people are all against that. People have very strong feelings. I'm curious what your opinions are. Uh, another question. I, I did some. Playtesting work for a company recently. I probably shouldn't mention it, but but it was a terrible game, and one of the problems with it was that it relied on an honor system, but it was a competitive game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll definitely be sued then if I tell you what it is. So, uh, but it was awful, and I want to know. You know, some people are all about that. I mean, apples, apples, like this like, honor system, but that's cool. Um, so, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think a lot of what you're talking about is designing the game for the audience. You know, picking, you talked about, Matt talked earlier about designing a, a system where the where the creation was for one audience and the game was being mainly sold to another exactly. audience. Uh, there, as you say, there are people who like the chicks, and if you, you sell them to them, then you maybe want to take however many you have and add 10% more. <laughs> uh, but if you're if that's not your audience, then you need to you need to figure out what your audience likes and, and build a game that functions around that. People, if you're doing a party game, then honor system works great. And if you're doing a competitive game, then it it just doesn't. And, and kind of neither one is right or wrong, but they they are for different audiences. Well, what, what's like what are your opinions? Do you prefer games? 
I'm a very good expert. Oh, no, we're here for you. I like both. I, I, I'm not yeah. to jump in front. I, yeah. I play all of them. It's, it depends on the group I'm playing. I have a group of people I will never play competitive games with, ever, no matter what. <laughs> They're very good friends of mine. And if they ever ask me, I say no. And why? Exactly. Very good. <laughs> Diplomacy has ended more friendships than anything. <laughs> I, I like apples to apples. Yeah. Because anyone can play it. Yeah. And a lot of my friends aren't gamers. Yeah. And they don't have the patience for it. Exactly. But um, I'm curious, I have a question for you. How is apples to apples an honor system game? Well, Because uh, I played it. Did I miss something? No, no, no. It's, it's uh, it, you know, if you're actually competitive with it, somebody could just say, oh, that was my card. It's not. Oh, it's uh, uh, or you can partner up. Me yeah. and Bob will always vote for each other. Right. There are ways to game the system. I have really never even thought of that. <laughs> Seriously, who's, who's done that with apples? Who's done that with apples? apples? Get, don't play apples to apples with either of these guys. I don't want to game with you, but I, I honor you for being so honest. Vote for the person with the fewest number of cards. Yeah. How do you know? Uh, Isn't it? Uh, uh, one of the things is that most of us are probably here in the room are That's gaming. terrible. Yeah. Most of us here in the room are probably gaming omnivores. I'm sure the guys up here at the table, we play all sorts of games, yeah. right? Um, but you got to remember that most people who buy and play games are not. Most of them get like five games they'll play that they always play. Right? Everybody's got a copy of Monopoly in the country, and it's probably been played less than once. Actually, Hasbro will tell you that. On average, their games are bought by mothers, aunts, and grandmothers in the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they are played an average of less than once. They're not actually games. They're just kind of furniture that's put out there, right? Uh, every, every holiday, they bring it out. You want to play this? No. Okay, it goes back. Um, but most people are not are, are not uh, gaming on the board. They find the kind of game they like, and they just keep playing. Right? It might be Settlers. It might be uh, Dungeons & Dragons. It might be Magic Gathering. It might be any of these different things. But a lot of them don't ever branch out from that, right? Um, so you try to figure out who your market is and who you're designing for. But when you're first designing, if you market games that you think are cool, right? You go to your own taste, because those are the tastes you can trust the most. And then you show it to other people, and they'll tell you how you're wrong. Right? Yeah. And they won't be shy. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I was just wondering, I've noticed a trend with gamers that they will suspend disbelief for certain things and completely drop something in half the <laughs> Like they'll say, okay, I'll believe in Jedi's in the Force, but why does Corset not have railings on top of their buildings? <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing that down. Because the force keeps them there. <laughs> and so you, I've got to wonder, at what point do you think, what are the matters that people really stand firm on? You know, flying spells are fine. Gravity doesn't matter. But Well, as a, writer, as a game designer, as an author, it, it, what matters is you can only have so many gimmies that people are going to give you. Right? That's number one. Number two is there has to be internal consistency to everything. If you don't say that there's something magical about the, the railings and then people say there's never railings, then they start asking questions, right? But if you say, and by the way, we have these force fields going around all the buildings and keep people from falling to the deaths or off their flying cars. You explain that stuff away, it's okay. But you need to have an internal consistency to it. If you screw it up, if you're not faithful to what you're designing, what you're doing, then it falls apart. Same is true for game design, actually. If you have, one of the ways I really like to design games is come up with a metaphor for the game, right? This game is about this. Maybe it's about, uh, you know, Giant robots beating the hell out of each other, right? In that case, there shouldn't be diplomacy rules in that game. Right? <laughs> uh, you shouldn't be worrying about 
you know, things like, you might think about heat, you might think about fuel, you might think about damage system, combat systems, all this kind of stuff. But you're not going to be worrying about, uh, you know, is this the right card to play in Apple's Apple? It just doesn't fit that way, right? Well, let, let, so, me, let me jump in on that as well. When, when I see writing, like what you're complaining about, and, uh, and I've written things like that as well and, and designed games like that, I don't think anybody may set out to tick you off with the inconsistencies. It's, ooh, we've painted ourselves into a corner. Now we have three choices. We can consistently get out of that and blow the rules or change a rule, put a new rule in, or maybe invent some force field that covers our ass. Because we we made a mistake. Um, I think the, the end result is the audience. If you pull that too many times, you're going to lose them. And then you have this, well, we're not going to sell as many, and why not? You get this feeling like, oh, we've done something wrong. You get feedback and you say, well, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. I've written things that were horribly inconsistent and then gotten the proverbial public slap on the wrist. (laughs) And said, well, how is that possible? And then I let that email go for like a week or two, and then I have to get back to it eventually. So um, we notice that you notice. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> we evolve with that. That statement there about the audience will give you a number of gimmies, right? All right, we'll ignore that. We'll ignore this. But once you run out of them, then, you know, it, and it depends on how involved they are. The more they like it, the, it's, it's kind of like a game show. You get more gimmies if they're really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the other hand, the more they like it, the more they want to point out the consistencies too. I mean, the guys who are the biggest fans are also the biggest pains in the ass. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, that's true. You have to love Star Trek. We were just thinking about Star Wars. Star Trek. I love Star Trek, and, and I also am fully aware that doesn't really cure every disease. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the one I grew up on. So I'll, no matter what they do, I'm okay with it. Um, one thing, I, I'll, I'll just jump in here and say, if people are pointing that stuff out, they love it. They, love they, it. they yeah, don't give true. you any energy unless they actually love the thing you're doing, aside from that one thing that, that they're complaining about. It's, I call it the fertile flaw. If you make something that's absolutely perfect for your audience... They may not say a word about it, and it will never get word of mouth, and it will never get buzz, because it's perfect. It's, it's, they just love it, and, in, and they feel comfortable and serene. But if you have this one fertile flaw that you intentionally put in there that they can go to a forum and complain about and get everyone else to talk about. This is the peer of the princesses. Of exactly. You want people talking about your fertility. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but, but, but basically, it's um, it, one last little note on that. Um, uh, is... Uh, I have, like, for example, um, in Doe, the, set, the setting is very weird. It's a bunch of little tiny planets orbiting around a uh, temple that floating, that's floating floats in the center of the universe. And there's no other space. It's all air. So people can take airships from one planet to another. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. And I have hundreds and hundreds of, of words um, just talking all about that. But a lot of it doesn't matter. It never comes up in the game. Rules for gravity don't come up in the game. Rule, rules for like how long you can fly or how, how, how you can jump or how much you can lift a, a gate or bend a bar, they never come up. So if you have weird stuff and people point that stuff out, you have to also filter it through how much you care about it, how much it's relevant to your game. So if they're complaining about that, then you know, take that take with a grain of salt. And also, I mean, it becomes a general... Game design rule, right? You, you, and, and fiction too, for that matter. You're going to want to have. You need answers. As the person who's making it, you need answers for all these questions. But the person who's getting your end product doesn't need 
all that. You need right. to, you need to it's not the tip of the iceberg, yeah. people, right? You have a whole lot of stuff built there into a whole structure that underlays everything, but they're only seeing the parts that they need. Right. Part of that's game elegance. I mean, uh, getting back to design questions, but uh, for instance, there are things where people see in a game that are wrong and then you decide to create rules to change them sometimes. Like, for instance, the encumbrance rules in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Which is that they're just horrible. They're absolutely horrible and atrocious. But the problem was that, of course, somebody was walking around with this much crap and it made no sense. So you had to make a rule that told you how much all this stuff weighed. When obviously the common sense approach is the game master say, you can't carry that much crap. Well, then how much crap can I carry? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That would be on the it'd be on the honor system. Right. Just don't let these guys. <laughs> well, what you're looking for that is something that's a little bit more elegant than actually having to uh, weigh every piece of equipment and tally it up every time you grab something and see whether or not that fits your strength for that period of time. It, it's just it's really inelegant to have stuff like that. Dungeons and Dragons is a wonderful example of inelegant rules as it goes along because a lot of it's just like we need a grappling system. Let's stick this in there. It just doesn't fit together. As they go along, you become better and better games, actually. I love the original games. Don't get me wrong on that. They're wonderful, innovative games. But as we move along, we come up with more elegant solutions to these questions. Right. In the question yes. right here. Well, I mean, this is directly following up, and you've kind of partially answered. Good job. But it is a design question. <laughs> that you have a tension as a designer when you have an idea between uh, granularity or specificity, that right. you want to explore every option that you have versus parsimony, where you want to keep it simple enough for to be appealing not just to your core audience that you've already done some research to, but um, to you know to appeal to a broader audience. How do you balance those two tensions, right? The need to be to to have enough parsimony. I do best. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but isn't that really the ultimate the ultimate question? You if you're in the business to make sales. Yeah. And to make money, you want you want to hit your core audience, but you don't want to water it down so that it appeals to just every lowest common denominator. You have to draw the line somewhere. And again, with the lovely question, is it art? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or, yeah. or is it commerce? But even in the marketplace, you'll see that there are markets for both types of games like that. I mean, Starfleet Battles is not going to sell the same group that buys apples to apples. On the other hand, the market for apples to apples is many orders of magnitude higher than it is for Starfleet Battles, right? But Starfleet Battles is one of those games that you can take forever to play, or Europa. There was this game called Europa that would take a room this size to play all the expansions, and it would take years, right? But there is a core group of people that love that game. They will spend every weekend of their lives playing it. You don't hear about it much, but they keep selling the supplements to do. Um, so I, I think the, the continuum tends to be the easier the game is and the more transparent and elegant it is, the broader your market's going to be. Right? That may not be what you're shooting for. Though. I mean, like, for instance, any role-playing game is never going to be a mass-market product. It's just We've tried it a number of times. The closest thing we ever got was Pokemon Jr. Right? <laughs> Seriously, it was the best-selling role-playing game product of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and it didn't sell well enough, so they took it off the market. Or has it selling Pokemon. I think that uh, to, the answer in almost every case will come down to how important is the thing that you're talking about for the game. Now you can get granularity on, on all kinds of things, but you only want it to be for the bits that are important for, for what you're doing. You're talking about the bend bar and lift gates. Like in the first edition, that seemed like an important thing. In almost every other edition, it didn't. It was too granular. Right. But you, you could make those rules. So as, as a designer, you need to pick what's important. 
Right, but sometimes if you, you know, what some people might see as a flaw, others will actually decide to feature. Right? If you go back to D&D, think about uh, Arms Law for Rollmaster came out, right? They had the most incredible critical hits tables that were granular out to just ridiculous levels. But they were hilarious to read and play with, right? So they took that kind of thing that some people might think complexity was a flaw and made it fun. Right? So if you figure out a way to do that, then you're winning at both of them. I think we have time for one more. All right. Oh, that's you. Side question. A lot of games have some kind of random element introduced to them. Uh, from a production standpoint, do you find that dice or cards or spinners, whatever you want to include in that, does that affect the overall cost of the production of the game significantly mm-hmm. enough that you would pick dice or cards you know, one over the other? It's or do you find it absolutely Number of dice, color of dice, different number of colors of dice. Yeah. It has to do with how many you're producing. And that's absolutely, I, I work with one publisher for about 90% of my work. And we often have discussions. Um, I will propose something and they'll look at it, they'll nod and say, is it possible to not have six different color dice? <laughs> they won't tell me. Yeah. Because they, I think they respect my work after all this time. But they'll say, is it possible? And give me the look. And there are times about... What's the price point? Right. If it's not, then we have to solve for this one. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, yes, the answer to your question is absolutely yes. But, again, which is, I think, connected to your question, sir, you have a vision. You want to be true to your vision, but if there's a logical reason that your vision doesn't need to be this, but it can be that, if it's functional, I say go for the lesser expensive. Didn't say cheap. <coughs> lesser expensive. You want to make sure that if you're not producing it yourself, you want to make your game or invention as palatable to a possible publisher as you can. And one of the ways of doing that is uh, as low a cost. As possible. Have you seen a publisher kick up the quality of the finished products because they think it's going to go? Yeah. 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 Like, fantasy like, I, would, I would think. It's, yeah. it's, just, it's justifying yes. the expense of their games by kicking up the quality of all of their components. And, and, and they, that's their business model. And they, they can do that. Not everyone can. Uh, for the most part, uh, I think more of us are more on the end of the cheap-ass games end of the spectrum. <laughs> Why their name that? Exactly. And, and you just have to think about what is the viable object? What is the thing that you are actually putting up on, on shelves? There is um, the reason that role playing games don't come packaged with dice most of the time is because dice are difficult to produce. And, uh, and up until now, you couldn't really do much customization on your own on top of publishing a book and then packaging those up into a box and then shipping all those out. Coordinating all that was beyond the scope of any individual RPG publishers. Uh, and if ability. you need dice, you just reach into the cushions. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, if you ever, Jim Ward, ask him about when TSR decided to put dice in their games mm-hmm. rather than buy them from a, a separate company. It's an awesome story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the reasons you don't put dice in book games is because then you can't open the book. You have to put them in a box, you have to shrink wrap or whatever. Mm-hmm. It becomes That's a true. huge pain. People like to open the book, flip through it, and actually be sold on the artwork inside and the rules like you're realizing mm-hmm. and stuff. So there's a lot of different reasons to do it in different ways. Uh, come up with your ideas, and this is the reason you work with a publisher, and they'll help you figure out what the best cost-effective way to bring your vision to market will be. Right. But don't let that restrict your game development when you're starting out. Just do what you do and do it and enjoy it. But then be willing to make the changes to accommodate the realities of how things are going back. Oh, 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 one recommendation I'll make uh, is uh, go to Google and um, Google Talks. They have they have a series of talks um, where they bring presenters in to the Google yeah. campus to talk. Um, 
uh, what's his name, uh, Matt Leacock, who designed Pandemic, has a one-hour talk on his, on his design uh, process uh, that led to the development of Pandemic, and he goes at length to uh, talking about the, the number of times that his decision had to be changed because of the cost of production. So that, that's, that's a decision he had to make individually. So check that out. It's very, very valuable. And uh, thank you all very much for coming. Yeah.